All right. Now, I know many of you are already anticipating this morning. Many of you know today is the fourth Sunday of the month, right? And on the fourth Sunday of the month, we have an opportunity to do something together as a church family. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know that we're walking through the Bible together chronologically. We are studying stories out of the Old Testament, and through studying those stories, we are wanting to catch a glimpse of God's redemptive plan as it unfolds before our very eyes. And so we have together been reading chronologically through the Bible, studying it in our small group Bible studies, but then we've also heard the challenge from your pastor to memorize one verse of Scripture each week that we will share together on the fourth Sunday. And don't look down. Don't look gloom. It's all right. There'll be Sunday. There'll be a fourth Sunday next Sunday. I mean, next month. If you didn't get it this month, we'll, we'll let you get it next month, all right? Now, I want to tell you, at my home, you know, it is challenging to be pastor, father, and husband. After last month's fourth Sunday, when I brought my note card up here with me, my children accused me of cheating. So I want you to know, my note card is right there. Go ahead, lift it up, Robin. I want everybody to see the note card. I have no note card with me this morning. I want you to recognize that. I even tried to convince them. I didn't look at it, but they did not believe that. So I have left the note card at the chair this morning. And so I'm right where you're at. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. If you're a visitor, you don't have to worry. You can just say something along. Just say watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. And it'll sound just like you know the verse of Scripture, all right? On three. One, two, three. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 9. Give yourself a good job. You're very good, guys. Go ahead. You can be seated this morning. Man, that is great. Now, if you're a visitor with us and you would like to join in with us or you've not had the opportunity, I encourage you on the way out, there's still some chronological Bible reading plans on the table. You can pick one of those up and carry with you. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'll ask that you open them to John chapter 11. We are going to do a little something different because generally speaking, when we have a fourth Sunday, I preach one of the stories out of our chronological Bible reading from the past month. Well, I'm not going to do that this morning, and the reason is, is next Sunday during our Lord's Supper, I have chosen a story that we've all read through already in our chronological Bible reading that I believe just presents a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ's redemptive work at the cross. So we're going to look at that story. It's the title I have been sharing with you. We're calling it The Good Snake. Yeah, I know. It's surprising. If you're like me, the only good snake is a dead snake. Now, I believe that, you know. I'm one of those kind of guys that believes you kill them all, we let God sort them out. That's what we do when they get to, you know. I'm not going to sit around trying to determine whether he's poisonous or not. I, I just don't do that. If a snake crosses my path and I have something in my hands, I'm going to deal with him. But there is a story in the Old Testament, this is hard to believe, of a good snake. 
We're going to look at that story next Sunday. But if you have your Bibles and you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we have been walking through chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, one of the great stories that is found anywhere in the Word of God. Now, some of you, if you've been here each week, you probably have been thinking to yourself, are we ever going to get that dead man out of the tomb? Well, I'm telling you, this morning, I promise to you, unless the Lord returns, then it's out of my control. But if not, we're going to raise him to life today, all right? Well, actually, we're not going to raise him to life, but Jesus Christ is going to raise him to life this morning, all right? And we're going to look. Now, many of you probably have heard this old expression. How many of you remember this expression, seeing is believing? Have you heard that before? I've heard that expression a number of different times in my life. Oftentimes, people who are skeptical of Jesus Christ will say, you know what? If I lived in the first century and I could have seen Jesus Christ face to face, if I would have been able to experience His miracles firsthand, you know what? I would have believed. But most likely, that's not true. As a matter of fact, I would say, if there was any group of people that had a reason to believe in Jesus Christ after seeing, it was the group of people in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. But when you read this chapter, what you realize is this. The vast majority of the people still did not believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. I would say to you this morning, seeing is not always believing. If you found your place there in our story, we're going to begin reading in verse 38 this morning. We're going to read down through verse 57. Now, I know that probably sounds very surprising to you. You're probably thinking, how in the world can our pastor deal with 20 verses of Scripture? Well, I'm going to clue you in on how we're going to deal with that. We're going to read verses 38 through 44, and I'm just going to make a few comments about those verses. Then we're going to pick back up in the story in verse 45, and we're going to read through verse 57, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in those verses of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles there, find verse 38, chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, and follow along this morning as I read. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Mary, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And I want to stop right there. You know, I spent a lot of time this week reading different commentaries and studying this passage of Scripture. I love what one old Puritan wrote about this verse of Scripture. This is what he said. If Jesus Christ hadn't called Lazarus by name, he would have emptied the entire cemetery on that day. You know what? That is so true. Listen, folks. There is resurrection power in the words of Jesus Christ. He has the ability to move those who are dead to life. As a matter of fact, Lazarus is an illustration a physical illustration of what's happened in every believer's life from a spiritual standpoint. Just like Lazarus at one time, we were all dead. But when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus, in His resurrection power, moved us from life to death. We are made alive in Christ Jesus spiritually. Lazarus is a walking talking example of what we've all experienced spiritually in our lives. Ephesians, the second chapter says, at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That didn't mean we were physically dead, does it? No, we could all walk, we could talk, we could move, we breathe. It meant that we were spiritually dead. In other words, before we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we could have cared less about the things of God. But at the moment in time, now now listen to me, at the moment in time we trusted Jesus Christ, we were awakened spiritually. Listen, a dead person can know nothing about the things of God. They can hear the things of God, but until they respond in faith to Jesus Christ, they are still spiritually dead. Doesn't matter. But at the moment in time you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are made spiritually alive. Go back here and listen to what it says. The man who died, I'm sorry, the man who had died came out, his feet and hands bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth just, I'm sorry, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now listen to what it says here beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in Jesus Christ. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them... Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now I'm going to say something about old Caiaphas here. Caiaphas would rival any politician that we have in America today. He was a good politician. First, do you see what he said? First, he tells all of his counterparts, You don't know what you're talking about. 
And second, you know what he says? I care about the people, the nation of Israel. Really, he didn't care anything about Israel. Caiaphas only cared about himself. Listen to what he says. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest, I'm sorry, and the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. If I were going to summarize these last verses of Scripture, verses 45 through 57, if I were going to summarize them with one word this morning, this is what I would say. Unbelief. Many of the people in this story, as well as the religious leaders, had seen the overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ was who He said He was. He was indeed God in the human flesh. And there was still widespread unbelief among the people. This story teaches us seeing is not always believing. I mean, think about it. They saw it. And yet, they still did not believe. I believe this story teaches us three very important lessons about the nature of unbelief. Let me share them with you quickly this morning. Three lessons that we learn from this story about the nature of unbelief. This first one probably will surprise you. I want you to listen to it. Unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. Let me say it again. Unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. I mean, think about this story for a moment. The evidence in this story concerning Jesus Christ is overwhelming. I mean, after all, He has just spoken, and a dead man has come back to life. There was no denying that Jesus, I mean, there was no denying the fact that Lazarus was dead and that Jesus Christ simply spoke the words, and as a result of that, life returned to the body of Lazarus. This story is filled with eyewitness account after eyewitness account of Lazarus' death. I mean, think about it. Consider Martha and Mary in this story. They both had firsthand knowledge of the fact 
that their son, that their brother had died. They had seen with their own eyes him draw their very last, his very last breath. They were there the day that he died. They were at the tomb when they took the body and placed it in the tomb. They saw the body wrapped in grave clothes. As a matter of fact, both of those ladies very clearly proclaimed to Jesus Christ when he arrived in Bethany, Lord, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. When Jesus Christ asked them to remove the stone from the entrance of the tomb, it is Martha who loudly proclaims, Lord, he's been in the grave four days. He will stink, is what she said. Well, maybe not those exact words, but she said, he has an odor, Lord. His body had begun to decay. There is no arguing. The evidence is clear. Lazarus was dead. Jesus Christ spoke. Life re-entered his body. Martha and Mary were eyewitnesses of that fact. Don't forget about the crowd. They are also eyewitnesses of the fact. I mean, think about it. If Lazarus is not truly dead, why in the world is the crowd there? They too, like Martha and Mary, had seen the body put in the tomb. They had seen the stone rolled over the entrance. They had seen his body wrapped in grave clothes. They had even mourned with the sisters at the loss of their brother. When I look at this story, the evidence is overwhelming. Lazarus was dead, but now he is alive. As a result of that, we can draw the conclusion that unbelief is not based on a lack of evidence. I mean, look at all of the evidence in the story. It's all plain to see, is it not? Can I suggest to you this morning that is still true today? That unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. The evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus Christ was born, that Jesus Christ lived, that Jesus Christ willingly went to a cross, that Jesus hung and died there, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day is startling when we look at the evidence of God's word. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled through the birth, life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is more evidence to support the claim of Jesus Christ than any other historical figure who has ever lived on earth. Did you know that? Let me ask you this. How many of you doubt that George Washington lived and was the first president of America? I don't think any of us doubt that, right? We all believe that. We've studied history. We've looked at it. But you know what? None of us have ever seen him. None of us have seen his wife. We've not met his children. I would be willing to say the majority of us in this room, maybe I could just speculate a little bit, I can say I believe no one of, none of us even know a relative of George Washington. But we still 
all believe that he lived, even though there is less evidence to prove the validity of his life than there is to prove the validity of Jesus Christ. But people walk around questioning all the time the validity of whether Jesus Christ actually lived. When the evidence is overwhelming. You see, the problem is not evidence. That's not what leads to unbelief. What leads to unbelief is people choose to suppress the truth. I mean, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, listen, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all people are without excuse. In other words, people have uh, suppressed the truth concerning God. The evidence was it clear. Instead, they exchanged the truth for a lie. That's what they've done. I mean, think about this. Within the heart of every person is created eternity. Every person knows the reality of God. What they choose to do is suppress that truth in their life. A lack of evidence is not the problem. It is the condition of the human heart that is the problem. This story clearly teaches us unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. Number number two, unbelief is based on selfish, selfish interest. Let me say it again. The second lesson we learn in this story is unbelief is based on selfish interest. At the very center of unbelief, is a person's overwhelming desire to have their own way. To be the masters of their life. To control their own destiny rather than to allow God to have His rightful place in their life. I mean, that's what really drives unbelief in a person's life. I mean, think about it. It was clearly seen in this story. I mean, consider the group of religious leaders. Caiaphas, the high priest, and and the Pharisees. Their unbelief is clearly seen in this passage of Scripture. Now listen to what it says here in verse 48. Look back with me. If we let him, that is Jesus Christ, go on like this, everyone will believe in him, And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
the religious leaders was a group of men that had a vested interest in the religious system of Israel. If, the, if people began to follow Jesus Christ, it meant they would lose control of and power over the people of Israel. Selfish interest. Now I want you to see something in this story. It's quite amazing. John shows the irony of Caiaphas' words. Caiaphas, the high priest, makes this statement. He speaks a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says here, beginning in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this for his, of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus Christ indeed would die for the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ went to the cross and He hung there to die to pay the penalty for all sin, the sins of mankind. Now listen to me. I believe here in the words of Caiaphas, we learn a very important lesson. If there's any lesson we learn from this man, it is this. God is always going to win every time. And those who oppose Him, I promise you, they will lose every time. No matter how smart a person may think themselves to be, you can't outsmart God. And you cannot keep God's plans from being fulfilled. Caiaphas thought he could. Instead, God uses Caiaphas to bring about the fulfillment of his plan. Do you know what the fulfillment of God's plan was? Well, let me share it with you. The fulfillment of God's plan was the redemption of mankind. God's plan was that Jesus Christ would be born that he would live a perfect life and that he would willingly go to a cruel cross. He would hang there and die to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. He would meet the just demands of the holy law. It demanded a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice. He never failed at any point of the law. And on the third day, God showed that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by raising him from the grave. That's what he did. Do you see that? It was all a part of God's plan. And somehow we think we can outwit God? That we can outsmart God? Caiaphas seemed to think that he could, right? Let me say, unbelief is based on selfish ambition. Selfish interest of man. The desire to control their own life. 
No man in and of himself wants to have a God rule over his life and control him. That is not the desire of his heart. It is only as we come to the end, to the point where we realize we can do nothing to save ourselves, that we can look up and cry out for God to have mercy upon us, and God will have mercy upon us. We very clearly see that in Scripture. Number three. The third lesson we learn about the nature of unbelief from this story is this. Even sincerely religious people can be unbelieving. Let me say it again because, see, I think sometimes we don't truly believe that. We think if a person is sincere in their beliefs, everything is going to be okay. Even sincere, even sincerely religious people can be unbelieving. Now, I want you to think with me a moment. If somehow we could transport ourselves back in time to the first century and we could show up here in Jerusalem on Passover day, Passover week, as the children of Israel have come together to celebrate God's deliverance. This was the most holy of all weeks in the nation of Israel. Most scholars said that the city of Jerusalem would grow by four times, that there would be over a million people, first century, in the city of Jerusalem to worship at the temple at this time. If we could somehow transport ourselves back in time and we could just stand and watch the children of Israel and at the end of the day we could all come back together and we could talk, I guarantee you we would all agree upon this one thing. This is what we'd say. You know what? Those Jewish people, they're hyper-religious. Man, they're sincere in their religiosity. We would all agree upon that. But can I tell you something? As sincere as they were about their religion, they were still sincerely lost. You know why? They didn't believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) You can be sincere all you want to be. But I will tell you today, Jesus Christ is the only way by which men can be saved. Not by religion, not by having your name on a church roll somewhere, not by going to church, not by church attendance, not by trying to stop doing good and start doing bad, not by trying to obey so you can make yourself acceptable to God. None of those things deal with mankind's problem. You see, the problem with mankind, we all have the exact same problem. We are depraved in our innermost being. We are full of wickedness apart from Jesus Christ. And it is only in Christ Jesus that we can be made into a new creation. I realize that is not a popular message in America today. But I want you to know that is the truth of God's Word. Salvation is found in no one else except for Jesus Christ. There's no other hope except for Christ. You say, well, Brother Jeff, you said we're evil, we're wicked people. Listen. Well, I'll just tell you this. You listen and judge for yourself, all right? 
what kind of people we truly are. I want you to listen to this passage of Scripture here. It's found in the book of Romans. This is a description of the condition of mankind. Just listen carefully. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's the reason why I said before we come to know Jesus Christ, we could care less about the things of God. We don't seek after God. We only seek after our own self-interest. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the condition of mankind. Now I know if you're like me, I think to myself... Oh my goodness, that is horrible. And you know what? I would agree with you 100%. But can I say this? As horrible as that is, it's not hopeless. Did you hear me? It's not hopeless. There is a Savior who took care of every bit of that at Calvary. And the only thing we have to do is to look unto Him, trusting in our hearts that when He hung and died on that cross, He did it for me to pay the penalty for my sin. You see... It's possible to be devoutly religious, to attend church on a regular basis, to partake of the Lord's Supper, have your name on a church roll, and still not be committed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And if you'll look to Jesus this year at the Christmas season, He will offer unto you the single greatest gift of all. Reconciliation back to the Father. He will restore your relationship with God because He is a God of grace and mercy. And He offers unto us this Christmas season grace and mercy. There is hope, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the way Your Word speaks truth into our lives. Father God, there's no words that can ever express my gratitude for your grace and your mercy that you poured out on me. Lord, I am so undeserving of what you have offered me.
And I am so very grateful at the same time that you have given me salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts and lives. Father, I don't know where everyone is in their relationship with you, but you know every person's heart. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day that they willingly enter into a relationship with you, that they place their faith and trust in Christ alone, believing that he died on the cross to take care of their problem. But maybe, Lord, for some of us, we do know Christ, but it's an opportunity for us at this time of the year to take a step back and really examine where we are in our relationship with you. Maybe we need to reevaluate, Lord, to see if we're walking faithfully as your child. I pray that you would have your way in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.